So I want to begin Holy Week this year by asking the question, why do we recite these Holy Week stories year after year? And for those of us who have been um, reading James K. Smith together in our, I don't even know what to call it, <laughs> adult Sunday school class, I don't know what to call it, in our group that meets before church, and some of you I think may have bought the book off the table and have been reading it along with you, his book, You Are What You Love. In that book, uh, Smith makes, I think, a very important contribution, suggesting that worship, the, the worship of the church, is not meant to be simply expressive. That is to say, something that we express from us. Now, obviously, it includes that. But Jamie wants to say, and I think importantly, it can't be reduced to that or even be made primarily about that. But that worship, by its repetition, whether that's the annual repetition of Holy Week or Advent or Ordinary Time or Eastertide, whatever those things may be, or whether it's weekly repetition of the liturgy, that it's meant to be formational, not simply expressive. And his concern, and I have to say that I am on this journey with him, that is, if I just try to be intellectually and spiritually honest in my own reading, my own thinking, my own considerations, and, and, and I should say, you know, I never stand here just to teach. I mean, anything you hear, I have learned and am trying to learn. And that's true of this business of liturgy. And so what Jamie says that I'm coming to see is that oftentimes this need to express ourselves then reduces worship to something that feels merely sincere. That is to say, and I know this is true from hundreds of people I've talked to over the last eight years of being an Anglican, that the biggest concern is, is that liturgies of any kind can turn me into a hypocrite because I'm using someone else's words and they may not match my real heart. And if that tension is happening in our heart and mind, this leads to then this constant need to feel honest or true or fresh or genuine or authentic. Well, those are all really positive adjectives, right? Like who could have a hard time with that? Who could argue against those things? Except for that what often happens then is this leads to the constant sense of having to have something new, something novel. And the sense that I can't really grow if I'm doing the same things over and over and over again. And that B, isn't this going to lead to me feeling inauthentic? And so you can see here what happens then is that then novelty or newness has the burden on it of producing in us fresh sincerity. A burden that, again, I, you know, obviously you guys have your own hearts and minds, but I just want to say after 40 years of reflection, that is a burden that novelty cannot bear. Novelty cannot actually produce in my heart sincerity. That is too big of a burden for it to bear. That, now you're getting at the deepest part of what it means to be human. And what Jesus means when he talks about us being driven by these internal parts of us. But you know, you know how this story goes is liturgy then gets accused, and I think this is especially acute in Southern California for reasons I don't have time to explain. 
But liturgy then gets accused of being insincere. And, and what people mean by that when they say it, and they're being really honest when they say it, is that, well, it just feels rote to me, or it feels flat. Or the big one, especially if you're anti-Catholic, is that, well, liturgy is used by those who are trying to earn God's favor. We Protestants are spontaneous, and, and, and the assumption is that in that spontaneousness is a sincerity that can't be found in other things. Well, again, you know how this story goes. That's what then leads to the church feeling this sense of having to remake herself over and over in order to speak to contemporary culture. Now, I have to say, I get that. I really do. I get the impulse. And I get that using language that no one else understands can be, at bottom, inhospitable. Um, there's a reason that Greek New Testament is written in Koine Greek, the Greek of the street, not the Greek of the philosophers or the Greek of commerce. It's written in street-level Greek. Well, there's a reason for that. So you can see that reasonable people can disagree about these things. You know, what good does it do for us to use language and symbols that no one understands? But if we just sort of throw that out or get off the fence on one side or the other, we then tend to think that, well, what worship is, is primarily a venue for innovative creativity. Now, obviously, I'm not down on creativity, and I am associated with somebody who's given her whole life to creativity, and it's certainly an aspect of this church, but it can't be reduced to it. And this is where I think Jamie makes an, an enormous contribution to our spiritual formation. When he asks the question, what if worship isn't primarily a venue for culturally derived innovative creativity, but what if worship is a place for discerning and faithful reception? That what we do here together is try to discern what God is doing in this moment, in this place, and to faithfully receive it. So that then kind of changes everything. So instead of thinking of worship as bottom-up expression to God or something that comes out of me to God, now here Jamie's being what, who he is, a truly reformed person, and again, I have instincts that agree with this. He's saying, what if we begin to see that worship is really rooted in the conviction that God is the primary actor in what Jamie wants to call the gymnasium of worship. So that we enter into a sacred space in which God is always already here. He's always the initiator. And as we begin to give ourselves to this worship in this liturgical way, that what we're really trying to do is notice what God is doing and receive the remaking and remolding of our lives in his image. So that the goal of this liturgy that we give ourselves to week in and week out, it's not to be historic. And I get that there's a little bit of a trend right now towards you know, ancient Christianity. Again, I, I'm not down on it at all, I get it. But that's not what we're doing here. We're not trying to be ancient. We're not trying to be historic. We're not trying to be faithful to a tradition. It can include all those things, but what we're actually trying to do is give ourselves to these prayers and readings and commenting and Eucharist with the notion that they will recalibrate our hearts, reform our desires, and in Jamie's words, to rehabituate our loves. 
And this requires something that is a total dirty word to us creative, casual Southern Californians. It requires submission. That we submit ourselves to the discipline of weekly doing business with God, of confessing our sins, for instance. So that I would want to say to you, both as a a member of this body and as the founder, I would want to say, thus, we never say the confession. Rather, week in and week out, we get on our knees, if we can, and we confess in the sense, the biblical sense of, we come to agreement with God about what's real in our lives. And what's most real about him And wherever those things are disjointed or malaligned, we come to agreement with God that that's true and we ask him to not only forgive the reality of that, but to free us from it and to free us from the forces that drive us away from God and to bring us into agreement with him. Now that's a very different thing than simply saying the confession, but that requires me submitting myself to that. And this is important because the creating of virtue, that is to say, a a sort of disposition within us that kind of automatically reacts with love and kindness and generosity and hospitality and service, that takes practice. And practice always, always involves repetition. So yesterday, just for the fun of it, I, uh, I, I looked at all the messages I've given on Palm Sunday in our first eight years together. And it was interesting just to see how I've grown. What I've learned through the repetition, are you feeling me here? The repetition of submitting myself to Palm Sunday year in and year out now for eight years. And I can see my own growth. I can see my own understanding. I can see places where God has spoken to me through these symbols and practices and rehearsing this story year in and year out. And the goal is is not that that would not just um, give me facts or data or theological insights, as important as those are, but that it would begin to reshape my loves so that I, I can begin to ask questions a little deeper every year. Lord, you rode into a crowd of people whose aims were significantly different than yours. How did you deal with this? What were you aware of? What did you think God was doing in and through you? Lord, how do I ride through my culture that that similarly has very different aims than the aims that I'm taking on as a follower of Jesus? Lord, how do I do that? And I can just see how year after year, I mean, we we will never, you know, as long as I live and, you know, I could be standing here someday at uh, almost 81 instead of almost 61, having gone through this over and over with you. And, you know, hopefully there'll be new young people around and we won't all just be old. <laughs> but having rehearsed this story over and over and over again with the goal that it becomes virtuous, that it creates virtue in me, not mere knowledge. So the repetition of Holy Week is meant to be our teacher about the power and glory of God in the inner state of Jesus. And as you walk through this week with us, as Beth has already invited us, this is what we're always trying to do. We're trying to come to understand the inner state of Jesus, his mind, his heart, his will, his soul, his spirit, as he gives himself humbly and, and, and becomes the suffering Jesus, 
and how these moments of Holy Week are meant to shape us as the most sacred moments in all of human history. And so Palm Sunday and Holy Week, as we give ourselves to it now, is meant to be an invitation to, to just notice. And then to enter into what God's doing in the retelling of this story. And it, it's meant to provoke in us a little something like what we read in our gospel reading this morning, that the whole city was stirred up. And they were. And it wasn't just Jesus' fans that they were stirred up in some ways. The Jewish leaders are stirred up in another ways. The secular authorities are stirred up in another way. But it's probably, you know, literally true that the whole city was stirred up. And they were asking, who is this? And, and that doesn't mean, you know, what was his name? And of course, they had heard all the speculation about Messiah and all that. It wasn't that. It was that, well, I know, but he doesn't match in any way what we kind of think is going on whether you're pious Jews or cultural Jews or, or secular Romans, this, even though there were some things they could know about Jesus, it didn't seem to really match anybody's story. That is to say, the aims of the crowd, again, were not the aims of Jesus. But in one important sense, they knew precisely who he was. And this is one of the things I love about the, there's lots to love about the Gospel of Matthew, but one of the things I really love about him is that he, 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 there's this pattern of he connects Jesus to prophecy. And then you'll see a section of him doing deeds or teaching. But at the end of these sections in Matthew, you almost always have a kind of summary statement. So for instance, the summary statement of the first part of Matthew says this. And this is what the crowds knew. They had experienced it. Jesus went through Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering with severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. And large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, and Jerusalem, Judea, and to the region across the Jordan followed him. Well, that's what led to these huge crowds on Palm Sunday. Those were the crowds. They had either experienced this or they had heard of this reputation. And that's why every Palm Sunday we see this notion of this royal welcome of laying out their coats, waving palm branches, and saying, oh, save now. That's a literal translation of Hosanna that would fit this context. Lord, save now, but there's kind of an oh behind it. Oh Lord, save now, rescue us, help us. So this Matthew passage that we've read this morning in various ways shouts this to us. And I want you to hear it in terms of our own formation and our own giving ourselves to these weekly and annual repetitions as a way of producing genuine virtue in us. The Matthew passage in various ways shouts, God's ways are not the ways of this world. Now I know that's a very religious thing to say. And I know it's a very typical thing to say. But I want you this morning to see if you can stop and, and get past the typicalness of it. And, and, and think with me about the crowd no matter who they were, like I said, from pious Jews to cultural Jews to secular people. 
that the, the alternative worldview that Jesus is working with as he rides this colt, this donkey, into the city, his worldview actually had very little attraction to most of his hearers. Neither pious Jews or cultural Jews or secular people were bent towards gentleness. It was not the bent of their heart. It was not a place of virtue from which they would naturally and easily act. They were not bent on peaceableness. Even God's chosen people, they weren't bent towards mercy or self-giving acts of love or generosity or compassion. Jesus is working out of a whole different worldview. And to kind of mix ideas here, um, I don't know, maybe it's like the chicken and the egg, which came first, the worldview or, or the virtue from which Jesus automatically acts. But whatever that thing is, that worldview, that paradigm, uh, to use that German word, zeitgeist, you know, the spirit of the age, what's operating in Jesus is very different than what's operating in these crowds. And, and this is at least at minimum, the annual invitation that we have as we come into Holy Week. This too is our challenge as we open ourselves up to this yearly rhythm, this repetitive rhythm that we have in Holy Week and that we've been doing it all Lent is, Lord, where does my structure of virtue, the habits of my heart, my sense of what's happening in the world, how and where does that line up with you? How and where does it, does it not? And how can we go there together? And this is one of the things that I, I like about Jamie is that he is basically an Augustinian kind of philosopher slash theologian. And that is to say that he's deeply reformed. And as we're talking about these kinds of things, one place that that's important is that Jamie is always animated and would want us to be animated by grace and by the previously existing initiation of God towards us. And that's so important because you're not actually gonna go to the deepest parts of your worldview. You're not likely to actually go to the deepest parts of the motivational causal you without knowing that God is already there and he will meet you there with his gracious love. Or those of you who come from more Catholic backgrounds, you can think of Ignatian spirituality. And to know that as you go to the places of you that's most real and, and try to understand the parts of the most real God that you can, you can always know that as you go there, you can learn to notice what's real about you in this Ignatian way of, of cultivating the ability to see what's real without judgment or without condemning yourself. Now, the theological basis for doing that, I would want to say, is a reformed basis. But the practice of it, I don't care whether you get there through a reformed way or sort of an Ignatian way. I care that you get there and that you learn to do business with God, that I learn to do business of God in the safety of God has already initiated that practice. And when we find ourselves there, we will find ourselves there with grace. That this is why, by the way, that every week you hear in the benediction that the Lord's countenance and his face would be upon you, that you would see how much he already loves you and accepts you right where you are. There's a reason I say that over you every week, 
because I'm trying to shape your heart and mind that it's okay for you to go to places that are the most real about you and to know that you do it with the countenance of the Lord already upon you. His face is already turned towards you. You don't have to earn that. You couldn't earn it if you tried. It's already there. He accepts you right where you are, but he also invites you to follow him. This is why we say that week after week. In fact, in fact, you might say that our benediction has become one of our most consistent repetitions. It's probably the one thing that has been here every week since we started. We might fuss with the liturgy a little bit here or there seasonally, but the one thing that's been here every week and that I hope has begun to shape your heart and mind is that the Lord's countenance is upon your life. His face is already turned towards you. And that's the environment in which we can do business with God. So thinking of those crowds and putting ourselves in the crowds, we might ask ourselves, I love the way Eugene gets this little snippet of Isaiah from our reading this morning in the message, when he, he has the prophet saying, who, who out there fears God? Who actually listens to the voice of his servant, this suffering servant Jesus, who's riding in Jerusalem on a donkey? For anyone out there who doesn't know where you're going, now I want you to hear this, and I want you to hear it, I want to hear it for myself, and I want you to hear it for you, but I also want you to hear this for those in your life who you know could benefit from this sort of liturgical structure that we're giving ourselves to. So hear this. For anyone out there who doesn't know where you're going, anyone groping in the dark, here's what. Just trust in God. Lean on your God. Go on this journey of Holy Leak with us. And know that like the crowd, sometimes when we say save now, we don't, we're not saying it with the same worldview of Jesus. You know, in this case, the crowds were crying out for a particular kind of political liberation. But Jesus knew the real enemy was not Romans or Greeks or foreigners in general. Jesus knew that the real enemy lurked within the hearts of every fallen person. It's called sin. And this, to me, is one of the great geniuses of Jesus, as he said frequently in the Gospels. It's from within, out of your hearts, your current structure of virtue, of desire, your current loves. It's from out of your heart that come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and greed and malice and deceit and lewdness and envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. Jesus said, all these evils come from within you and they are what defile you. So now as we begin to give ourselves to Holy Week this year, I know that you can't come to all the services. Some of you just live too far away. You know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday is just too much. But in whatever way you can give yourself to it, there are so many Holy Week resources out there that you can find online these days. But I just want you to know, I, I have come to treasure this. This little journey from Thursday, being out on the patio and Good Friday and here and come to treasure what Todd Pickett and Beth have done with us on Holy Saturday. It's actually kind of become one of my, one of my favorites is the, just the quiet contemplation of Holy Saturday and then you'll come in here next Sunday and, and the great celebration of Easter. I just want to encourage you to give yourself to it. You know, each evening has its own flavor, its own capacity to recalibrate our loves, our inmost being towards Christ, and I just invite you to it. And as we have a quiet moment now, you may want to bow your heads and, and maybe just wonder as we come now to the fullness of Holy Week, 
what in you cries, Hosanna, save now, help? Maybe you've discovered something in Lent. Maybe there's just something happening in your life right now where you find the cry of Hosanna. Lord, save now. Help us. Just become attentive to that right now and let it become a bit of a launch pad for you as we move into Holy Week.